So does God choose us or do we choose God? Before we jump in today, I want to say three important things up front. Number one, what I am teaching today uh, is a position at which I personally have arrived after many years of reading and praying and struggling and studying through these issues. I have pretty intensely uh, struggled with these issues surrounding today's questions uh, for no exaggeration about the last 25 years. Uh, and I am in a different place now on these issues um, surrounding this question than the theological tradition of my youth. Um, but it's where I've come to. Um, uh, that's where I come to believe that the scriptures point us. So I will be teaching of you that may be new to some of you. Don't worry. It's not heresy. You can all relax. Let's say that up front. <laughs> Today's teaching falls squarely in the strand of Orthodox Christian teaching over many, many, many centuries. A little more on that in just a minute. Second thing I want to say here is that the answer that we're going to come to today on this question of does God choose us or do we choose him? The answer to that is basically yes. Um, yes. God chooses us. We choose him. Now, that bottom line answer, by the time we get through about 100 scriptures today, um, will come with some significantly nuanced differences as to what those choices mean. Uh, but I hope that you see today um, that God's election of us, that's the doctrine we're looking at, election, that God's election is actually a motivation and a confidence builder for living as if our choices matter. It's actually a reason to be aware that preaching the gospel actually works. So we'll eventually get to a nuanced yes, um, but it'll take us a while to get there, um, which is why I'm already talking fast. Thirdly, one's answer to this question today is not what I would consider and what most folks consider an essential of the Christian faith. Uh, there is room for differences on today's issues. Some Christians will act like the answer to today's question is absolutely an essential, but I think it's a matter of conviction and not an essential. This is a graph that we use in Next Steps and in Great Questions to picture how we as a church navigate questions of what kind of importance to place on different uh, various doctrinal matters. You can see it says essentials, uh, convictions, and opinions. If you can't read that, that's what it says there. Essentials is in the middle, and then it's con con uh, con convictions, thank you, uh, convictions, and then um, opinions. In any church bigger than one person, you are likely to have people with different views on today's question. So I think today's question doesn't go into the middle of essentials. Some folks might think that, um, but most folks think it's probably in convictions. Uh, there's room for difference on this, and we shouldn't split as a church because of it. We shouldn't say, he's crazy, I should go somewhere else. I mean, you can say that, it's okay. Uh, come to Great Questions starting Monday, August 5th, and let's uh, struggle through it together. Um, but here's what, here's what we need to continue to keep in mind here. Mature Christians who are way smarter than all of us have disagreed on issues related to this question for hundreds of years. And they have done so both graciously and not so graciously. So I want to say up front before we jump into the scriptural texts today, let's choose to be full of grace for one another on questions that aren't essentials, but that might be in this second of those concentric circles of convictions. I want us as a church body 
to be a rare but a shining example of grace for one another in questions of non-essential convictions so that we can together keep our eyes on the prize of unifying around the essentials that keep the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus preeminent. Amen? All righty. So I'm going to take that as your agreement. (laughs) Full of grace for one another. All right, much to cover. And we only have time today to provide kind of an overview argument here. But here's the main assertion that we're making today. It's this. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. I know there's a lot there. Election here basically means just to choose. It's a Bible word. That's why we choose it. The word election just means to choose. So the doctrine of election basically means that before creation, God chose some to be saved, not because of any foreseen merit in them that makes them worth saving in God's economy, but because of his own sovereign good pleasure. The shorthand way of saying all that is two words, unconditional election, unconditional election. We'll support our main assertion that we've just talked about there in four main parts today. And uh, the first is this. We'll study the New Testament teaching on unconditional election. I'll explain in just a minute, in just a minute why we're just going to focus on New Testament. Um, secondly, we'll make one quick clarification, which is that election is not a fatalistic or a mechanistic doctrine. Uh, thirdly, we'll briefly look at God's purposes in election. It's important that we view God's purposes in election the same way the New Testament does. And then fourthly, we'll close with a few quick thoughts on uh, why I think unconditional election is a comforting, a humbling, and ultimately a very freeing uh, doctrine. So let's jump in together and study first the New Testament teaching on unconditional election. We're focusing today just on the New Testament because we just plain don't remotely have the 17 hours required or something like that, required to build a case for unconditional election all the way from the Old Testament through to the New. But suffice it to say that when you add this huge thread throughout the entire Old Testament that presents God, listen to this, this is a lot to put, take in right here, that presents God as a loving and personal being who not only created the world, but who is intimately involved in carrying out his benevolent and eternal plan by blessing and choosing and appointing that certain things be done by certain people in a certain way so that his purposes would be accomplished as he planned. When you add all that in there from the Old Testament, it's a pretty good case to to be able to say God's initiative before the world began in choosing the people and the places and the means for saving his people apart from worthiness in them or foreseen response by them is, I think, a pretty good case. Now, having said that we're ignoring the Old Testament, there are just a couple passages I want to look at real quick. They're too good not to look at. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9 is sort of a formative passage in this whole idea of God's electing grace. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9, they say this. This is so good. Starting at verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Meaning you're set apart as holy to him. The Lord your God has chosen you. There's that word, chosen you. You see this throughout the scriptures, a bunch of places. God chose blank. You, 
the person, the means, the place, the way that something happens. It happens in a bunch, a bunch of places throughout Scripture. You will have a hard time finding the opposite of those. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. There's nothing special about you, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. His promise is grounded in his character and nature. It is because he is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And then just to make sure that the Israelites understood clearly who is doing what here, look at Deuteronomy 9, uh, 4 through 6. Look at Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, in other words, after God has kicked out the evil nations so that they could have the promised land, do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because, verse 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and this is key, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess it, Because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. From the very beginning, friends, God has wanted to make clear that his love and his righteousness and his blessing and his mercy can't possibly be earned. He has set his love as a decision based on his own character and nature in the first place before the foundation of the world. He has set his love on his people because that is what he wants to do. Now, several passages in the New Testament affirm this idea that God ordained beforehand those who would be saved, not on account of foreseen merit in them, but because of his sovereign good pleasure. In Acts 13.48, this is when Paul and Barnabas begin to be preaching to the Gentiles, and it became clear that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but for the non-Jewish Gentiles. Luke says this in Acts 13. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, in other words, that the gospel was for them as well, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Look at this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How many believed? As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And notice, in contrast to the unbelieving Jews that were just talked about a couple of verses earlier in 46, the response of these Gentiles who believed here in verse 48 is temporally, uh, temporarily, meaning in time and logically, it's temporally and logically grounded in having been appointed by God to eternal life. It is clearly, this is, this is a way to say this succinctly here, it is clearly those God appointed to eternal life who believed. It is not those who believed who were appointed to eternal life here in Acts 13. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, we read this. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, how? According to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We could talk about this word for a long time. We're just going to say this. In the Bible, this word predestined carries the connotation of choosing to bless or benefit for the good of the recipient. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that for the purpose that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called those whom he called. He justified those whom he justified. He also glorified in the following chapter in Romans nine, when talking about God's choice of Jacob and not Esau, which is, is Paul using an analogy to discuss God's sovereign will in election. Paul says it was not because of anything that Jacob or Esau had or hadn't done, but simply in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Romans nine eleven says this, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but why? Because of him who calls. Here in Romans 9, in verses 8, 11, 15, and 16, this choosing is said to occur before Jacob and Esau were even born, not because of works, not on the basis of the flesh, not on man's will, nor on his efforts, but solely upon, it says, God's purpose of election and his decision to extend mercy and compassion as he perfectly wills. In Romans 11:7, Paul is talking about the fact that some of the people of Israel were saved and others were not. And he says that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, meaning in general terms, in general terms, Israel missed the Messiah. They missed him. And then he goes on to describe two distinct groups within the people of Israel. He says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Paul distinguishes here between the elect within Israel who obtained salvation and those who were hardened. It says nothing about the people choosing God or deserving his goodness. In John 6:44, Jesus himself says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. In 63 of that same chapter, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. <laughs> in John 15:16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. This language of choosing, foreordaining, predestining, appointing is all over the scriptures when it comes to the process of the initiation of salvation and all that happens as a result after it. As the beginning of Ephesians says here, Paul's talking explicitly about God's choice of believers as happening before creation. Ephesians 1, 4 to 6 say this, he, meaning God, chose us in him, meaning Jesus, God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, which is clearly temporally and logically prior to our choice of response in faith. We'll get to that. Relax. Don't worry. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It says this verse five. This is a great verse in love. He predestined us like Deuteronomy seven says he set his love on us. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? Not according to goodness or merit or even relatively acceptableness, but according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
A few verses later, he says in verse 11 in Ephesians 1, he says, In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. Why? According to the purpose of him who works out all things in accordance to the counsel of his will. In the very next chapter in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul makes this point very explicit that our faith is not on the basis of God's choice of us. He says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, that word this, doesn't just talk about the grace, or having been saved, or the through faith of the previous sentence. It says, and this, meaning the whole process of this salvation, is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, something given to you. Look at John 17, the way Jesus prays to the Father about how he receives those given to him by the Father. He says, this is not your own doing. This is Paul speaking in Ephesians 2. It's the gift of God given to you, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For, verse 10, we are his workmanship, not our workmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared prepared when? Beforehand. And why? That we should walk in him. In Thessalonians uh, 1, in 1 Thessalonians 1, Uh, 4 and 5, Paul says this, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. There's that language again. He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only a word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and a full conviction. Notice here that Paul says that the fact that the Thessalonians believed the gospel is the reason he knows that God had chosen them. Belief in the gospel is the final outward sign of the temporally and logically prior choice of God to save. He later writes to the same church in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always, meaning it's so clear that when you accept the gospel, it's a sign that you are chosen by God. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. In many places where Paul talks about the reason why God saved us and called us to himself, he explicitly denies that it's because of our works. He points out time and again, rather, that it's God's own purpose. And he even grounds our worthiness of being saved on God's unmerited grace and favor given to us as a gift we don't deserve and determined from before creation. 2 Timothy 1.9, cool passage. Paul says, God is the one who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which only now has been manifested, made known through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. When Peter writes an epistle to Christians in numerous churches in Asia Minor, he says this in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to those who are elect. In 1 Peter 2.9, he calls them a chosen race. In the book of Revelation, John has this vision of unbelievers who do not experience persecution because they worship the beast. So these are unbelievers who are not experiencing the persecution because they worship the beast. John has this vision and he says that they are those whose names have not been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Look at Revelation 13, 7. It says, Authority was given it, meaning to the beast, over every tribe and people and language and nation, and and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of Lamb who was slain. In a similar way, we read of the beast from the bottomless pit in Revelation 17, 8, where it says the dwellers 
on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Not only does God's perfect will extend to those whom he chooses to save from before the foundation of the world, extends to those on whom he will eventually pour out his wrath. That's how perfect his will is, according to the scriptures. We've covered lots of scriptures and various aspects surrounding this idea um, that God has chosen us, not on account of any foreseen merit in us, um, but because of his sovereign good pleasure. This is, uh, this is called unconditional election um, because it's not conditioned upon anything that God sees in us that makes us worthy of him choosing us. It is all from God and it is all for God's glory. Now, one quick important misunderstanding of many um, that we need to clarify, and we're just going to touch on this one, um, and it is this. Election is not fatalistic or mechanistic. Second of four main points we're making today. Uh, election is not fatalistic or mechanistic. There are lots of other misunderstandings, objections that we don't have time to cover. Um, so if you want to come struggle through these questions together with us, come join us at Great Questions starting Monday, August 5th, 7.30 at the Greenville campus. So sometimes those who object to the doctrine of unconditional election say, It's fatalistic. It destroys human choices and decisions. It reduces us to sort of amoral robots that merely function according to God's predetermined plans. Um, But when Scripture talks about our response to the offer of the gospel, it doesn't view us as mechanistic robots. It views us and talks about us as genuine persons making willing choices to accept or reject the gospel. In Matthew 11:28, Jesus invites everyone. He says, "Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." At the end of the Bible in Revelation 22:17, there's a similar invitation where it says, "Let him who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This gospel offer is addressed to genuine persons capable of hearing the invitation and responding to it by a decision of their wills. When it comes to those who will not accept them, Jesus and many of the scripture writers, but obviously Jesus clearly emphasizes a hardness of hearts to those who reject him. The stubborn refusal to come to him, which again, just like acceptance, rejection is the prerogative of genuine persons who make willing choices. John 5:40 says, yet you, receive, you refuse to come to me, Jesus speaking, that you may have life. Jesus cries out in sorrow when Jerusalem, his own people, rejected him. He says, he says in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Now, having looked at this brief overview of the New Testament teaching on unconditional election, it is important to view this doctrine in light of God's purposes in election that we see in the New Testament. There are three ways in the New Testament that it speaks about God's purposes in election. And so we need, we need to think similarly about this doctrine in a way that the New Testament does. So it speaks first 
of election as a comfort. Speaks of election as a comfort. The New Testament authors often present this idea of election as a comfort to believers. When Paul assures believers in Romans 8:28 that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, he gives the added assurance in the next verse that they can hold on to the truth of God's comfort based on God's work of calling, predestining. Romans 8, 29 and 30, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. For those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul's point here is to emphasize that from before any one of us existed, God has been acting with the good of his people in mind in a way that includes even our present circumstances. Secondly, the New Testament views election as a reason to praise God. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, super great verses, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious Grace, in verses 11 to 12 of that same chapter, he says we were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He's saying we've been predestined, we've been chosen, we've been elected, we have been adopted into his family for the purpose of living to the praise of his glory. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 4, Paul tells the Christians there in Thessalonica, we give thanks to God always for all of you. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. The reason Paul can give thanks for these Christians in Thessalonica is that he believes that God is ultimately responsible for their salvation and has in fact chosen them to be saved. He says it that way in the next uh, little section here in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, the next uh, book, of Thessalonians in 2.13, he puts even greater emphasis on their election as a reason to praise God when he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Third way the New Testament views God's purposes in election is as an encouragement to evangelism. As an encouragement to evangelism. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, it says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, those chosen by God to be saved, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now notice here in this verse that Paul roots his own motivation to endure in the knowledge that some will respond in faith. He grounds his own motivation to endure in suffering for the sake of evangelism, in the knowledge that some are going to respond in faith. Meaning election is actually a guarantee of evangelistic success. Not 100%, but of some. It's like God inviting us to go fishing and saying, I guarantee that if you fish, you're going to catch some fish. Because I have people who are my elect, my people who need to respond to the offer of the gospel. They're hungry and waiting. Election is actually a guarantee that our efforts in preaching the gospel will be heard. 
So, long story short, nuanced answer to the question, does God choose us or do we choose God? I think yes is an acceptable scriptural answer. Uh, But here's my nuanced version of what I think these choices mean as best as I can uh, put it together. I think the witness of the entire council of scripture is that God very certainly, definitively, and powerfully chooses us because of his perfect will from before creation, going so far as to initiate and facilitate all of the actual ways and means of our salvation so that it would depend on his good will and pleasure and not on any foreseen merit in us. Thus, I think that the scriptures define meaningful human choice differently than we do. And not primarily as the ability to maintain an unrestrained, we think, not primarily as the ability to maintain unrestrained personal human freedom to do as we will, but as the humble acknowledgement of God's initiative to rescue us in Jesus so that we will do as he wills. Unconditional election means that we are Christians simply because God decided before the creation to set his love on us. It wasn't because you're good enough. I think we need to disabuse ourselves of all the ways that we believe that lie. You can't ever be good enough. That's why we needed the grace of God in the first place. And when we think about why God decided to set his love on us, as he says in Deuteronomy 7, we need no more ultimate reason than this. We actually need no more ultimate reason than this because in God's perfect and mysterious will and good pleasure, he decided to. That's enough. That's enough. Unconditional election, finally, I think is a comforting, a humbling, and a freeing doctrine. For me, a main takeaway here is this. I don't need to keep manufacturing reasons to be worthy of God's love. This is huge, friends, if you will let it be. I don't need to keep manufacturing reasons for my own personal brokenness to fix myself so that I can be worthy of God's love or yours. I simply need to respond to it. The humbling truth of this idea that God chooses us in Jesus before the world began because it pleased him and not because we have earned it, it means that we can actually live in the boundless freedom of clinging fiercely to God's grace alone without having to manufacture reasons to be worthy. Don't miss this, it's big. Faith and belief that you have to manufacture by yourself, from yourself, for yourself, is a life of misery that runs the risk of turning everything around you and yourself into a self-salvation project. 
but faith and belief that you accept as the gift of God to you is a life of comfort and confidence and freedom that rests in His initiative to call you His own because He decided to set His love on you. Let's pray, friends. Father, we admit that we are powerless. That we are powerless to do anything to meaningfully fix our problem of sin and rebellion and a heart that perverts the good things You've given us into opportunities for self. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to teach us that your sovereign, perfect, and good pleasure to facilitate the ways and means of us knowing you is a way of humbling ourselves and living out of confidence and freedom with the faith and belief and trust that we have in your son Jesus was given to us by your Holy Spirit that turns our flesh a body that can hear you and respond to you in faith. So Father, we are grateful that you've gone before us and that you're a God who initiates relationship with us so that we need not manufacture reasons of worthiness. Lord, help us to live out of the amazing mysterious truth that you're a God who decided to love us so that our response would would accord with your will for us. Father, give us uh, lives that, that live out of this, this amazing truth that you've gone before us. We love you for that, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.